Um, okay, okay, we're back yeah. for our first episode of the um, of the year. Uh, of course, we have Kyle Gothi on. Kyle and I do a YouTube channel, Kyle Gothi on Film. Please ahead, look for it, like and subscribe down link down below. Kyle knows it's time to dedicate. What would you like to dedicate this episode to? Hopefully, this won't be a full on dedication and more of just a call to action. But I'd like to dedicate this episode to the hardworking people over at Turner Classic Movies. Yes, who are striving to keep their jobs right now. Keep um, the brand. Yeah, yes. if you've never if you've never used Turner Classic Movies, uh, you've got to. It's a film fans reference. You can find the hub on Max right now. Please go use the service. Please tweet out save TCM. Uh, we've got to keep that uh, that group going on much longer than they are right now because they're fighting to keep their jobs. Yes, let's do it. Save TCM. Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast with your host, Nick Palotichuk. Each episode, Nick interviews filmmakers and other artists from the Twin Cities area. I'm Carly Palillo, and thanks for listening, and thanks for finding us. Please give us a review and feel free to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, lights, camera, action. Okay, we're back on the show, and today we have... Hey, Kyle Gothi is here again uh, from Kyle and Nick on Film. Yeah. Uh, it's been a couple days. <laughs> right. Uh, if you haven't really noticed, we do a YouTube channel, Kyle Nick on Film. We critique two movies a week. Um, you can check that out on YouTube. We also have a Patreon for that as well. Um... Kyle has a website also. Yeah, goatfilmreviews.com. It's been a little light on at the beginning of the year, but I promise there was some more stuff coming on the way. Um, okay. Focus has been really heavily on on our YouTube channel. Uh, so, yeah, check out that over there. And as Nick mentioned, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash kylenickonfilm. We do two episodes a week over on that show, uh, and one of them can be yours if you join at the $5 tier. Or you can just join at the $1 tier and you get episodes like Picks with Kyle and Nick, our ranking episodes, uh, Road to De Palma, which is our De Palma series. We do lots of stuff over there. Okay, like I said, we uh, I'm returning back to my podcasting. Uh, I've been away for health reasons. Um, we're slowly getting better, so hopefully I will get back into the routine of podcasting. I want to thank everybody for finding me again and listening to the episode. Um, since it's been a while, and it's in June, I figured an opportunity to talk about what's been going on in film of this year and do a mid-year report, simply because a lot of these films that get released between January and June don't get a lot of recognition at the end of the year. And it's a good opportunity to get a, put a shine on some of the movies that probably get lost when we do best of the year at the end of the year, but some of them kind of, yeah, let's just sell sustained and there's some uh, good movies. I haven't been able to watch a lot of the content, but Kyle has the opportunity to see quite a film, quite a, a bunch of films from this mm -hmm. year. Um, we don't necessarily review a lot of new films on our YouTube channel. So this is a great opportunity to talk about some new ones for us as well. So, uh, without further ado, let's get uh, Kyle a fresh introduction to kind of the films we've been seeing of 2023. Yeah, and I want to start with a note by saying that, you know, the first half of the year tends to be a pretty pretty studio heavy. You know, those those smaller films tend to kind of peter out around, yeah. you know, awards season and stuff. So you're going to see some of those kind of franchise stuff, but also some surprises and things in there. I also want to say that as far as compared to previous years goes, I don't think 2023's first half of the year has been as strong. As previous years, last year I had a top 10 halfway through 2022 that yeah. almost could have been my top 10 at the end of the year. Uh, a number of those films stayed on the list. Now there's a bunch on here that I don't know will 100% make it, but there's been some really good surprises this year. And I think maybe the easiest way to start is with the biggest tent poles of them all, which is the superhero films. 
Um, yeah, we've been saturated already. We've had a ton of them. I mean, we've and on the one hand, we've had some of the worst I've ever seen. Uh, I would say that Shazam and last year's or Shazam two and last year's Black Adam are probably the worst DC films to come out in a long time. Hard to um, digest, too. Yeah, yeah. And Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania was an incredibly disappointing, probably my least favorite MCU film. Okay. But on the flip side, we've also had these really great superhero comic book adaptations like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and I actually, I quite like The Flash. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I haven't yet to see The Flash, but I think it's, um, I know what I'm getting into. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's going to be CGI heavy at the end, but. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess just starting yeah. off, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, a very, very strong closing to a trilogy that I've enjoyed all three installments of. Well, isn't Nathan Fillion in it? Nathan Fillion's in it right, again, so, playing right. a different character than he played in the other two films. <laughs> uh, so, you know, let your, let your multiverse, uh, thoughts go wild on that one. But yeah, it's, it's an incredibly tight knit closing of a film that I think actually does justice to the okay. incredibly confusing infinity war Endgame Gamora storyline, um, while also closing out where these characters are and presenting some new possibilities down the road. Yeah. It's kind of what you expect for kind of like a third. Yeah. Fourth. And I just, I appreciate that it, it, there was a few moments I felt where, okay, they, they, James Gunn knew that we were expecting certain characters to die throughout the film. And so I love that the entire two and a half hours he's teasing us by showing us the characters in extremely mortal peril, just so that we tend to wonder, wait, is this going to be the moment? And then we're not sure. And we're, you know, like we keep getting twisted back and forth. So I like that he's aware of what the fans are looking for. It seems like every new superhero film nowadays is like, who's going to die in this one? And I don't entirely think that's always right. fair to the characters because it's not about who it's about the storyline of the characters not who dies and who lives it might be interesting to know if if you'll maintain that kind of taste and flavor for a superman movie that he's doing yeah because i this, think like semi comedy that um he puts into it peppers into it yeah he, i mean he excites me for what he's going to do with superman legacy but part of it is because i've seen the lighthearted james gunn in a number of his guardians films um, he has a lot of fun with violence in the Suicide Squad, which you'll remember was on my top ten of the year it came out. Uh, even the um, Peacemaker series. Peacemaker is, I, <laughs> I'll say right one. now, I think it's the best DC television series. I, I agree. Maybe yeah. one of the best superhero series I think ever put to film or television because I, I love that show. I When I need to get a pick-me-up in the middle of the day, I, I will listen to that theme song. <laughs> <laughs> and wonder what takes were making the, the rest of the crew laugh more than all that. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm excited for what he's going to do with Superman Legacy because I've seen the fun sign. I've seen the hope that he brings to it, too. He deals with dark elements. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is a yeah. very hard watch. There was there was kids in that theater that when I was seeing it that I wasn't sure how they were going to take certain extremely violent and graphic depictions, but it's the hope that he applies to that darkness that right. I think gives me a lot of inspiration for what he's going to do with Superman. He has fun, though. I mean, if you watch movies like Slither, he is having the most fun possible with some of the silliest premises. So it makes me excited for things like who's the villain going to be? You know, who's he going to play with in, in legacy that's going to really have that James Gunn sensibility? I think he understands that superhero uh, Superman. Yeah. His greatest power, his greatest strength is he's, he just constantly has to do good. Exactly. There's no way he can be corrupted to do bad at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that James Gunn is going to shine the light to that. He's a, he's the, we all call him the great boy scout of the superheroes. And that's what he is. He's just the greatest boy scout ever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on, uh, was there some movies before we get to your list that kind of 
uh, didn't make the list that you want to talk about. Um, sometimes something kind of surprised you a little bit. Yeah, uh, I was extremely surprised with Dungeons and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves. Yeah, and I was hoping to be able to bring it up today because it's a movie that did not do extremely well in theaters and will probably never get a sequel for it, which is unfortunate because I think it's probably the most fun I've had in a fantasy film in a. If long I did time. my list, I just didn't have enough content to put up. It would be in my top five. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I watched it again recently. I wasn't expecting to go out and purchase it, but my wife asked if it was a good movie, and so that, as, as a film collector, is like, well, I have to go buy it so I can show it to her. Um, I w- purchased it and rewatched it again and had a ton of fun with it. Um, I'm a very mild Dungeons & Dragons fan. I, I've, I played it when I was younger, but I didn't play it regularly with a regular group, okay. so it wasn't something where I knew all of it, but certain moments like that really popped for me, seeing certain monsters that I was familiar with, certain spells that I knew, uh, I could see what it places, was. Places, locations, yeah. yeah. Um, I love that it had its own unique formula. It wasn't like a carbon copy of Game of Thrones or something you know, like a you know Sword of Sandal movie we saw from the 80s. It's this very distinct, unique movie yeah well and that's the difficult part about it is it's that it's kind of like selling us on a lego movie uh when that was coming out it's like well what's the plot i mean in dungeons and dragons the plot is whatever you whatever you can come up with so what do you make that makes people happy makes fans happy and i really like the approach that the directors took um they also did game night the incredibly underrated comedy a couple years back Oh, highly underrated. Um, it was fun they took the approach of this is going to be basically four people playing Dungeons and Dragons in a lot of ways. And that these four characters are really being played by humans in some ways that are personifying the right. fun aspect of D&D. Because that's what it is. People take D&D a little too seriously and say it has to be this like end of the world stuff. It's not often that. It's usually a lot more of a fun, goofy time between your friends. Yeah. All right. Well, Kyle, let's start off the list. Um, uh, obviously, you, you compiled a list of our top ten movies of the mid-year mm-hmm. um how do you want to start do you want to go 10 to 1 uh well there, i don't have a, an official listing yet so i'll just kind of throw out some ones that i think were good and we'll just you know okay. see what we can discuss I like about it. it's not just official listing it's just 10 movies yeah these are the 10 that i've been kind of like okay. throwing around for a while so there's the aforementioned guardians there's the flash there's spider-man all films that i really quite enjoy this year yeah. um i also want to talk about one that i again is kind of disappearing from theaters right now but it's currently out is you hurt my feelings starring julia louis dreyfus um, this is an independent comedy that is about a writer. She did a pretty good uh, nonfiction book a couple years ago that won some awards, got some some play, okay. and now she's writing a fiction book. Uh, and it's kind of about her like dealing with this idea that writers have to give themselves to their audience. Writers have to, you know, have their work be read to be done. It's a really funny, quirky dramedy, and I love this. The, the main arc for her character is that she finds out that her husband who's been telling her how much he loves her her book doesn't like the book she overhears a conversation with him and a, and a friend where he says that he thinks the book is poorly written and, and not very good and now she can't reconcile that and I think if you've ever been a creative who's had a spouse and you've had to kind of you know they always ask can I read your stuff can I check out your stuff and you're just you know kind of self-doubting constantly it's kind of the biggest horror story for creatives <laughs> right and my, my cue is always never write safe never write for something that you Parents could put on their kitchen fridge. Yeah. Right, that nobody's watching. Mm. Right, safe. All right. So, um, what was the name of the Julie Root? Uh, you Hurt My Feelings. You Hurt My Feelings. Uh, it's currently in theaters right now, and I think it'll probably be streaming pretty quick because it's, it's not doing terribly great for an independent film. Okay. Um, another one I want to highlight this one's actually streaming on Disney Plus right now. Um, the filmmakers reached out to me a couple months ago and sent me a, a screener for it. It's called High Life. 
which is a documentary from National Geographic about the uh, the couple that worked at Patagonia, and they ended up uh, kind of giving up their shares of this company and moving into um, South America to buy up as much commercial land as they could and turn it into a sanctuary. Okay. okay. Uh, it's a really fascinating story. And again, I love these documentaries where I have no idea anything about the story because then it, it really allows me to kind of breathe in all those yeah. moments. Um, I never heard about this. Yeah. High life. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wildlife. I, I wildlife. misspoke. It is wildlife. I was thinking right. of a different film. Um, but wildlife is a incredibly engaging story uh, that reminded me it reminded me of kind of that hopefulness of one person can make a difference. When you see their impact that this couple had in purchasing up this land that was going to be deforested, that was going to be, you know, ripped up from the ground up by by companies and by land development uh, in South America and seeing what they do to kind of get ahead of that and make these safe places for the animals and the wildlife to grow yeah. and thrive. Really compelling stuff. Interesting. Wildlife yeah. on, available on Disney right now. Yep. And I would okay. say, too, you can uh, pair it with that uh, that volcano movie from last year that was on Disney as, as well, because it is really about a, a love story between two people being faced against this. Oh, God. What know. was it called? It was like Love of Lava or something like that. Yeah, like, blanking on it. But yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll see it if you're looking. <laughs> Fire of Love. That's it. Fire, Fire of Love. That was it. it. I, I have yet to see that yet. Yeah. Um, I also want to highlight a film that is technically a sequel, but I don't think most people would actually know. And it was a film that came out in January. It's called Missing. And ah. I think this is part of that uh, kind of new technique of making films called Screen Life, which is basically the film is set on your computer screen. So the original film was called Missing. It starred John Cho about five I've years ago. I've seen this one, right? It's um, pretty much all on Zoom and... Um, it's all set, I think, on his on his computer screen. And this one right. goes a little bit further. There's some scenes that are set on a phone. Uh, and there's some scenes that are set... Um, you know, kind of in different variations, you see camera work and stuff like that being done. What I really find interesting is how both of these films, I said, well, I don't need to go to the theater to see that. And then I went to the theater and saw it. And I was, it was, it was instantly engaging because you wonder how are they going to pull off not actually having a camera moving around? Um, but it kind of feels like those point and click adventures that you'd have from back in like the late nineties on your computer where you're yeah. trying to find clues inside of those little locations. Um, this one, I think, goes a little bit ludicrous in certain aspects as it closes. Um, and I did feel like I was guessing where it was going a little bit too much. But I, I, at the same time, there was a lot of twists and turns in the emotional arcs and the friendship of the characters. Um, I, there's an actor named Joaquin de Almeida who plays kind of a handyman that the main character hires when she's looking for her missing mother. And... He's one of these guys that you'll recognize him when you see him. He was on 24. He was in Fast and the Furious 5. Like, he pops up a lot in these kind of smaller roles. And, like, his character has such a small arc in the film, but he just pops every time he's on screen. He's a very engaging performer. Okay, so it's called Missing again, right? Missing, yes. Missing. And it involves a young uh, woman played by Storm Reed, who is looking for her mother who went on vacation with her mother's boyfriend and then disappeared. And... Like I said, I, I kind of felt like I knew where the ending was going, but yeah. there were so many twists and turns going on the way to that ending that I could not have fathomed. And I had a lot of fun with it. I think it was a great uh, theatrical experience with a group of people. Okay, so that was missing. What's next? Uh, up next, uh, let's talk about Air, uh, which is streaming now on now Amazon Prime. this is one of the Prime. few mo the movies that you're going to mention that I have actually did see. Oh, okay. You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime right now, which is a great chance to catch the film if you didn't see it in theaters. Uh, I 
it's we've talked about Tetris on our show recently, Nick. Yeah. Uh, and it was kind of I mentioned that it was kind of part of that like brandographies, which is about like the making of an item. Um, there was another movie that came out yeah, this, this year new called Genre, kind of starting its molding. Right? Yeah, so. and it's not something I want to see a ton of. We've seen three movies this year that I've already employed it: Air, Tetris, and and another film called Blackberry that I thought was quite good. I really enjoyed all three films. It's just not something I want to see all the time. But I really liked uh, Ben Affleck's direction here. Kind of proves again why Ben Affleck is a very very capable director, uh, and he finds a way to access something human about a bunch of guys not wanting their company to go under and trying to get a hold of someone else's name for a shoe. I mean, it's an incredibly stupid idea for a a film and yet it works. No, it does. The effectiveness is the, and I think for people your age, a little bit, you know, a little bit younger, Mm thirties and younger, to understand how it just Nike was no, nothing. Yeah. It was really nothing in the eighties. We all were Adidas for, you know, athletic stuff. That was it. And it wasn't until Michael Jordan and that whole gimmick of, well, they're going to pay the fi- the whole thing, the transaction of they'll pay the fines for him not coming up to code for NBA for the shoes. Oh, yeah. His, his name is on the shoes. He's going to get cut of it. And that whole publicity that happened from like 85 to 88 of we just everywhere he was Michael Jordan. Yeah. And because of that. Ha- not having Michael Jordan actually in the film. I mean, he appears, but we don't see his face. We don't really see his performance right, or anything. Yeah. It was a very unique idea because in, in some ways, it would be really hard to find someone who could play Michael Jordan, like who could really have that same. I mean, we, we saw the same comparison when they made Space Jam 2 and LeBron James just could not do what Michael Jordan was doing in those films. Um, it, it would be really hard to cast a Michael Jordan, and I think it would be really hard to to play up the legend of a character if you saw him on screen a bunch. Yeah. So he has this larger than life appeal. I think Viola Davis as his mother is phenomenal. And I think she should be in the conversation when it comes to best supporting actress next year. Just for that long engaging phone call. Yeah. Of, yeah. With him and Matt Damon. Her interactions with Damon are, are wonderful in the film. And again, they proved me wrong because I kept saying this movie is not a good idea. And I don't, I don't, I don't understand how this movie could be so engaging when everyone kept telling me they'd seen it. And it won me over. You know, it, it really did. Uh, yeah. It had a certain style to it. It was a lot of fun to watch. And, and you felt this, you felt like you wanted them to succeed. I have no stock in Nike. I don't make any money if they succeed. But I wanted them to because of, I think, Ben Affleck's really terrific direction. And it changed, It's well, I have to say, it was a game changer of mm-hmm. how you brand yourself now and yeah. how you attach yourself now. Yeah, and, and I, some of the stats that they gave at the end of the film were just, gave me some awestruck because I, I didn't realize even how much, I mean, we all knew Michael Jordan kind of had this legendary status, but I didn't realize how much his legendary status kind of pervaded everything around him until right. I saw how the film actually ended. If you did a commercial for Wheaties, I mean, all of a sudden people were buying Wheaties yeah. just out, out of control. Yeah. He was that strong to, well, strong enough to make a movie. Right. Yeah. Space Jam. Well, yeah. I kept thinking to myself, you know what? There's going to be a sequel in a couple of years about WB trying to get him in Space Jam. Uh, and it's just going to follow everything else. We're still not going to see Michael Jordan in yeah. that film. I highly recommend it. It would probably be another one of my top 10. I was surprised. I would took a, it was a hard button to push. I was like, do I really want to be invested to watch this movie? And it was a very smooth. I'm really impressed with the editing. And mm-hmm. Jason Bateman gets it. He should get a shout out. He was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, he obviously he's doing Jason Bateman, but. <laughs> The thing is, though, if you hire an actor like a Jason Bateman, you know that there's a, a specific thing he's great at. And I think if you know yeah. that and you want to utilize that, good for you. Just selling. Yeah, he's a great at like, all right, the world's crap, but let's do what 
let's try to make it less crappy. Yeah. Well, and there's that heartfelt uh, scene where he talks about his family that I think, yeah, again, might be one of the best scenes in the film. I think if you didn't have that Viola Davis angle, it would be the best scene in the film. Right. And everybody gets their right amount of scene time. Everybody gets their functions. Yeah. Even even Ben Affleck, whose character doesn't really have much to do in the film. No, playing Phil Knight. Yeah. yeah. But he's this kind of pop that he gives the film because Phil Knight was such an unusual character. And Affleck's not really doing that much, but he's just kind of highlighting kind of the the uh, larger-than-life story that's at play. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I recommend it too. Air. Yep. And also check out, uh, if you haven't seen Blackberry, it's from IFC, so I don't know if it's going to be streaming anywhere real soon, but Blackberry was another interesting brandography um, about the kind of the, the two guys who both built and destroyed Blackberry phones in a matter of years. It's a really fascinating uh, it was film. a small window when we all wanted one, right? Yep, yeah. yep. And I think Glenn Howerton in that film is is phenomenal. He plays uh, kind of the guy who knows nothing about phones, but he knows about how to business things. And he com- comes in and doesn't doesn't understand the product he's working with. And I think that's a very fascinating kind of dramedy. All right. So so far we got wildlife missing air. What else we got to give a shout out to? Uh, I want to jump back into the franchise stuff and talk about Creed three. Okay. Um, I was very taken. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Creed films, not just the first one by Ryan Coogler. I really, really liked Creed two from Stephen Capel Jr. Uh, and how kind of the sins of the father are reflected upon the son. It yeah. feels like there's a very there's a very mythic status to what the Creed films are doing, and the fact that this film does stand on its own. It's Michael jo- B. Jordan's first directing credit, really? uh, and he directs the fight scenes stylized kind of like they're anime where there's this larger-than-life quality to, like, the punches being thrown. You feel a different energy. And I, I'm not going to say that it works better than the more realistic take that we see in a lot of the Rocky films, but it's it's a unique approach where once you're nine films into this franchise, you've got to start doing something different. Right. You know, I kind of... I, I, said, I agree, because when you do your own director, you're not, you don't want to be a paint-by-numbers director. You want to put something out there and has it. Where's the exaggeration when you're making a movie? Honestly, it's the fighting. You have to do something unique to the... Including with all the Rambo, Rocky stuff, what yeah. are you going to do to incorporate something new, something people have never seen, the exaggeration? Right, sound has to be part of it. Yeah, and I think that was strong from the from Creed 1 with the the musical choices that were made, the the homage to kind of this man that he never knew. Like Adonis Creed never really knew his father, but he's got this legend to contend with. And I think that's a really captivating thing. I I know we don't want to mention Jonathan Majors a lot because he's dealing with some like, we're not sure what's going on with his career and what's going on with his personal life. But just talking about his performance-wise in the film, he is a great, great villain in this film where he is able to chew the scenery and make a lot of those. He kind of reminded me at some points of... Uh, Mr. T from Rocky Three, no, where it was over the top, but it kind of it just worked. I know it looks. I know you can cite all the Rocky movies from the eighties, but I see a lot of like even like the nineties stuff, like Michael Bay, Bad Boys, you know, mm. stuff like that. I can see a lot of influences as well as not just the Rocky franchise of plucking from them. But yeah, you see a lot of from like the Bad Boys, kind of like a little more comedy into it as well. Yeah, so I really appreciate that all three Creed films are very distinctly different films. Yeah, that I feel together. I so. agree. Instead of just being a cookie cutter, cut out, paint by numbers, we know what's going to happen at the end, but we have a little more interest involved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Um, one film that definitely is not on my top ten, but I think it's a fun movie if you're interested in R-rated violent films is I actually was surprisingly taken with Cocaine Bear. 
that came out earlier this year. Uh, Elizabeth Banks directed this. Yeah, this is probably that Elizabeth Banks directed. Yep. This. Yeah. So it's uh, based on a true story, but really, it's not. It's not based on that true story at all. About a bear who got a hold of a bunch of cocaine from some smugglers and got super high and went on this kind of rampage around a, a park. This is a very fictionalized version of that tale. It seems like the story was the catalyst yeah just to turn the key to the engine to get this bit film out there yeah yeah and so the the story itself like the true story is is less interesting than you than you would believe because it, it isn't really as as kind of over the top as this is and i think it's the right way to play this um they should have had more fun by actually saying like based on a true story sort yeah. of this is just <laughs> my brain going off but you know she was in the movie with nathan philly and in slither mm-hmm. and i wonder if working with james gunn and Slither kind of rubbed off on how she wanted to approach Cocaine Bear. I could see that. I, I, I was thinking about that film. I was thinking about Brightburn. Um, you know, some other takes that she had about, you know, telling these kind of over-the-top tales, kind of inverting your expectations. Um, I had a lot of fun with Cocaine Bear. Great soundtrack. Um, everybody in there is buying into the movie, too. And that's what's important is that every actor is aware of the movie they're making. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's very much more effective than just a little bit of wink of the camera. I can't, can't believe I'm doing this movie. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's some some incredibly gnarly sequences in the film. And I also, uh, you know, if, if you're a fan of Ray Liotta and you missed him over the last year after his passing, it is one of his last roles and he's a lot of fun in the film. Um, I think Alden Ehrenreich, who gets a lot of unfair hate because he was forced to play. He was playing Han Solo in the, the Solo film, and, and people will always compare him to Harrison Ford. I He's love great that in the movie. film. I'll defend it. Oh, I, I love Solo. I think it's yeah. fantastic. But I think he gets that unfair hate just because he's not yeah. Harrison Ford. And it's nice to see him in a movie having some fun again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cocaine bear. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do drugs. All right, moving on. Yeah. Uh, another one I wanted to call out. This is probably the one I would, you know, I would classify as being my favorite film of the year so far. And it might actually be my favorite action film of all time. I, I make no jokes about it. I've seen the movie three times now. I really love John Wick Chapter 4. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah. the fact that you can pull off a two-hour and 50-minute action film. And we've seen action films before where, like, the action becomes exhausting. And you need to break. And you need to walk away. This film has a way about it where it's able to slow things down just enough after each of these enormously entertaining action set pieces to give you a little bit more character, set up a little bit more that's going on. It's almost uh, paced like a horror film where they give you, instead of the scare and then the comic relief, they give you the action scene and the comic relief. Yeah. Um, I've kind of mirrored this based on people, and I haven't seen John Wick 4 yet, but the accolades that people are like, this is the best one so far, reminds me of, when uh, the late, the mid eighties of Friday the 13th, when the fourth one, mm. Friday the 13th, this is the best one. And this is going to be the last one. Everybody's going to see this is the best one. Yep. And it, it's almost like the same thing. It has everybody loved the fourth and like, forget all the other ones. You got to see Friday the 13th. The and then so let this was going to be the last one. And of course it was such a big success. It's like, well, we have to continue. Yep. And it seems like it just mirrors the same kind of people gravitating the reviews and everything about John Wick four, but this is getting, it's getting better. It's fantastic that, yeah, I think we're going to have to continue on. Yep. But it's, it's kind of unique that it's almost the same thing that I remember as a kid seeing with the, what happened with Friday the 13th movies. Yeah. Cause I, I was actually pretty early to the, to the hit on John Wick one. That was a movie that didn't perform all that well. A lot of people caught it. 
I think I remember the the first trailer came out like three weeks before the movie hit. It was barely marketed, um, and I caught it pretty early on and was kind of like underground saying like, yeah, you know, Keanu Reeves has this little like little action movie where he's the lead character, but he's styled like a boogeyman kind of guy who's coming to get you. And I was really taken with it. And then slowly but surely, it just kind of started getting that traction. And I think John Wick Chapter 2 does some things I really enjoy. I don't think it's as strong as the first one. Three, I was all in. I thought three was a brilliant piece of, of action filmmaking. And I'm like, they're not going to top three. They can't. My biggest flaw with three is that the film feels like a middle chapter. It feels like, you know, we did all this stuff and now we ended on a cliffhanger. And I think John Wick four picks it up and says, this could be our end game. This could be the finale and this could be the end of our story. And I think it works really well as the finale of a character story. And they might do a fifth one. Sure. But I think where four leaves us off is a perfectly comfortable ending for this franchise yeah i'm quite surprised fourth is really i mean not over just giving high praise it's like yeah people are saying it's one of the best out there yeah it's hard because i think after the first there's one set piece that's the first 30 minutes of the film okay and okay. when that finished i said well that's not going to be topped that was incredible and then there's uh another one that builds on it and another one that builds on it there's a, a fight in a nightclub with uh stunt performer scott adkins in a in a heavy set suit and he he's fighting and that scene works really well on its own as like this little side story in the film i think the two best scenes in the film are near the end and, and you'll know it if you if you've seen the film but there's the, the staircase fight scene i think is a brilliant piece of action that has a little bit of comedy to it and then picks up the action again and there's another sequence where the camera literally begins level with john and then rises up uh where you're actually looking at everything from the sky and I made a comparison in our Snake Eyes video um, over at Kyle and Nick on Film where we see kind of yeah. that, that overview of everything going on in the rooms. That yeah, is just yeah. an excellent action set piece. It reminds me a lot of how The Raid 2 pulled off a nearly three-hour action film that also never lets up, but you never get exhausted watching it. Really, really tremendous filmmaking. Yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm surprised that it's getting great reviews just because of like four. I thought we were going to be a little bit exhausted, but it seems like it's picking up more. Yeah. And it's so long. Yeah. I just felt like I, I've been complaining about films being too long for the past like five, six years now. And this was one where I was getting a little nervous when I saw that runtime. How can you sustain it? And they did. Yeah. I wouldn't cut a thing out of it. Wonderful. John Wick 4. I'm going to have to see it too. All right. <laughs> What else? Uh, I also want to talk about another movie that's not performing very well. It came and went, I think, in about two or three weeks at theaters. Um, th I'm not the target audience, but I really, really enjoyed Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Um, um, I've never, well, I've, I just know about the title. Yeah, I've read the, I've read the Judy Bloom book before. I read it once. I don't think for school. I think it was just something that came across my way, and I read it. I really admire this movie because it... It deals and, and it kind of it gives me as a viewer like I'm never going to understand what it's like to go through puberty as a young girl. I'm, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to know about that. The, the young girl experience of growing up. Um, I can only speak to my young boy experience of growing up. But, you know, dealing with, you know, getting your first period, dealing with uh, going through all those like physical changes that come with it was done in a comedic way that I think translated to a lot of the mothers and daughters that were in the audience when I saw it. And it's just a movie about kind of finding your place in all of that too and being able to move forward. I, I just really admire Judy Bloom for tackling a lot of really difficult story pieces in her, in her books. 
Um, she, she talks about puberty. She talks about sex. She talks about um, gender identity in her books. And these are books from like 40, 50 years ago yeah, right. that we're still having arguments about whether or not they should be in libraries today. And I think this movie is one that, gosh, I really hope that if you if you didn't catch it in theaters, that you get a chance to stream it when it comes out, because I was absolutely taken with it. Yeah. Judy Bloom. Uh, what's next? Uh, let's also talk about let's talk about the deadite in the room. Let's talk about Evil Dead Rise. Oh, my gosh. Um, a movie that I had so much fun with. Now, now I, I, everybody knows I'm a horror fan and I've been bombarded with. Have you seen this movie? You need to see this movie. Mm. And I just. Didn't have the time to go see it in a movie theater. I'm still recovering. Mm. I didn't know if I could sit through sitting in the movie theater to see it. And everybody who's seen it, just like, my God, Nick, you got to go see this movie. Well, you have Max, I assume, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's on Max now. As the time of this recording, it is on Max. So um, this is a movie that was originally created to go to HBO Max just as a release on the the streaming service. But when, uh, you know, I I give a lot of stress to David Zaslav when he took over, he said, this movie is good enough to go to theaters and we're going to put it in theaters. And I think that was an incredibly smart decision. This movie is at its best when you're with a couple other people and you're really kind of taking in the excitement. Perfect timing to release in the theater too, spring, Mm -hmm. because we get a lot of thought over horror movies in the winter, Um, spring, Kind of like March, April, perfect time to do it because nobody's talking about horror movies. Yeah, so I think we're, we're finding that these horror films are not just destined for the good ones to come out in October and the bad ones in January. Yeah. We're finding that horror works year-round. I mean, some of the best years in horror recently, were, there was a release every like two or three weeks that people were talking about and saying, oh, this is going to roll over, this is great. Um, I did a huge Evil Dead binge before I went to see this movie because I had never seen Ash versus Evil I Dead. You always do, yeah, yeah, no. uh, so I'd not seen that show at all, but I had all the seasons. So I watched the three movies, I watched the remake, I watched the three seasons of the show, and then I Ash hopped in the car. And, and all that. Yeah, and I went okay. to see Evil Dead Rise. And I'll say this: it it goes exactly the way you think it's going to go. Like, there's not a lot of ingenuity in the storytelling outside of just how they find a way to introduce the Necronomicon. But what it does, it does very, very well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, there's some some really good plays on your expectations with certain elements. Um, I like that it's set in a high rise. I like that it's set with a family because that just kind of raises the and stakes. We're not in the woods. This yeah, time. and there, I mean, there are literal children, which is a concerning thing for a lot of horror fans. It's like, oh my gosh, is something going to happen to the children? Um, I think I hope I have her name right. Alyssa Sutherland, I believe plays the mother she becomes the first uh possessed person as this, we see in the trailer uh, has a little bit of when you, when you talk about it and, re- and you research about it but it has a little bit of like poltergeist three yep yeah you could tell there was that homage uh that was i think intentionally done but yeah listen sutherland wrong with poltergeist great. three it's great yeah poltergeist three is a great uh a well-directed movie given all of the problems that came out with that movie exactly. um yeah. yeah and i think I think this is one where we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be talking about certain scenes. We're going to be talking about cheese graters for a long time. Ooh. All right. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to watch it tonight. Um, yeah. Obviously, if I've seen it yet, it'd probably be in my top ten. I just love that franchise. I love the it, – it, it's an own, its own little world. Like mm-hmm. its own little template of what the monsters – yeah, its own rules and what they have to do. And it's the superstitions. You have the guidelines there. Well, I like that it's it's a franchise that's very much like Play-Doh, which is that each director can come into it 
and make something completely unique right. and put their own take on it. I mean, yeah. a large part of the beginning of the franchise was Sam Raimi directing, and you had this wonderful blend of horror and comedy. But then you had this 2013 Evil Dead film that was heavy into the horror and the gore. But then you had Ash versus Evil Dead, which you know a number of different directors came in and did episodes for that and each each episode director has kind of a different flair to it they had a Christine episode where the the car gets possessed by a deadite and like they just had a lot of fun with that TV show and then you have Lee Cronin um who who directed The Hole in the Ground comes in to do another take on the film and again has his own DNA kind of superfused with with the film and it's just an incredibly malleable franchise i absolutely agree with that it's malleable you can different perspectives Mm-hmm. Same with kind of like when you do Spider-Man. You can do animation. You can do different people being Spider-Man. You can do a different universe, different eons and centuries ahead of time or behind or past and present. And it's that's a, what, we like, what we like about Spider-Man. It's a malleable system. Anybody can come in and get their own interpretation. Plays different people can play Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, with the Evil Dead Rise, it gives the opportunities to kind of, what do you want to do with it? Yep. Well, maintaining you want to really gross people out or you want to do psychological, you want to do superstitious and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's some really unique ways in which we access what we've seen before in this Evil Dead film. And I I really hope we see another one, whether or not it's with the same group of of people or just keep giving me Evil Dead every couple (laughs) of years because they're they're not expensive to make. And as we've seen with this one, this one was made for streaming. So any money it makes past the marketing budget. Cheaper, right. We can make horror movies in these franchises go on forever, and I'm totally fine with it. I'm still here watching 13 Halloween films, so like I'm, I'm in. <laughs> All right, great opportunity to uh, take a break. So before uh, we let me go, we just want to mention the movies again that's missing. Wildlife, Evil Dead Rise, Creed 3, and John Wick 4. Mm. Can't wait to see what we talk about next. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. Do you read books? Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, Check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. Welcome back, and now more with the show. five movies i just want to let you know i will be at uh, minnesota comic exchange uh, july 22nd at the valley creek mall in woodbury minnesota that's uh one day july 22nd i'll be there with a table selling my comic books artworks uh of course promoting my two shows this show as well as kyle nick on film um so if you have opportunity to uh, come out check it out uh, july 22nd with the minnesota comic book exchange at the valley creek mall in woodbury minnesota July 22nd. I think it's just from 9 a.m. to 5. So, small window. If you get an opportunity to see me, talk to me. I love to talk about anything, especially movies. So, hopefully, you get to see me. All right, Kyle, we're moving on. Um, next five movies, I kind of give a shout out. 
All right. Uh, well, we we got. I gotta get in depth and talk about Spider Verse. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, again, uh, I think the longest studio released animated film ever at two hours and twenty minutes. And then I just see another burst of people saying we have to go see this again. And it. I'm not going to say it's the greatest animated film of all time. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is I think it has the greatest animation of any film ever made. Yeah. Uh, the way in which each world, and again, this is another multiverse story, and I know we're getting tired of multiverse stuff, and I, I've never been a huge fan of it because it tends to loosen the stakes, but the way in which this film deconstructs the idea of a multiverse story. you know, It introduces things like canon events, which is no matter what your Spider-Man is, they have certain things that have to happen in their journey. And I think that's a really captivating way to deconstruct the story. If this Peter Parker, the sixties, something has to do Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Or Gwen Stacy's the superhero. And it's, it's a perfect uh, distribution, I guess, or continuance of what was created with into the spider verse. Cause they have that running joke in that film, which is every time they introduce a new Peter Parker, we have to tell, Hey, I'm Spider-Man and here's how my origin works. And they hit the same kind of beats. I love that they distilled that out and really turned that into kind of an almost a cabin in the woods kind of joke where it's these are the things that have to happen to make you you and also test the the limits because the Miles character is unlike any other Spider-Man we've ever seen. So in a lot of ways, how how can he overcome those canon events, those those things that have to happen to him? Yeah, Um, Um, I've one of those that. Everybody is just absolutely love that coming out of theaters. So. Yep, I'll say this: I I think I, I wish the film had a better final moment. We know this is the first half of a second part that's coming out next year, but I I wish these movies kind of had more of an Empire Strikes Back ending, where it like feels like an ending and not like a cliffhanger. We've gotten a lot of films that have had that cliffhanger in to other films that have just like you know I criticized right. Dune Part One for that as well. I thought Dune Part One felt to me, like, we don't have enough of the story to leave with. Uh, and I also, I really criticized Fast X this year for that same reason. Fast X literally ends with a, which characters are alive, which characters are dead. And it's like, that's not what this needs to be about. Um, <laughs> we don't need to make it so over, you know, over that silliness. Um, but I, I do think that what we see on screen, you know, really tests the limits of where our superhero filmmaking can go and where our animated viewpoint can go i've been incredibly excited for this film and also the uh, upcoming teenage mutant ninja turtles because the animation style in both those films is just incredible looking i can't wait to see how these unique we're, we're moving away from the pixar or the trying to make everything lifelike animation and into a stylized animation renaissance that i'm really excited for yeah i love it that really embrace the exaggeration yeah and i, I really enjoy how in in spider-verse every single world feels like a unique world. I mean, when we spend our time in, in Gwen Stacy uh, and in her world, everything is pastel and it's, it's like the colors are constantly raining on screen. Uh, there's a sequence early on in the film. It's like five minutes in, so I don't consider this too much of a, of a but uh, where they get a vulture from another universe comes into theirs. It breaks through our, our reality and it's a vulture from a world where everything is drawn like Da Vinci. And so he's got this kind of like, drawn on paper look to him and he kind of crinkles and crackles as he fights um yeah just, I, I really wanted to see this this yeah, is kind of my kind of thing yeah I, I won't give any of the surprises away but there's a number of interesting surprises um 
and those little kind of gag moments as well that I don't feel like they're member berries. I feel like they're actual nostalgia done right. You know, they're, they're those little fan moments that are done right and really help to to elevate the material. Wow. Another one you had brought up that I haven't seen it and I really should. I really mm-hmm. should go see it. I probably really would like it too. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see it again. I'm not one of those people that goes back to the theater a second time because there's just too many other movies out there. You know, if I'm going to the theater, I'm going to see something I haven't seen. But uh, this is one I'm very excited when it comes out on home video because I'm also that kind of a person. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to have to see Spider-Verse. Hmm. All right. What's next? Uh, the only other film that I, I really wanted to call out from my my Big Ten is you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the, the episode, but it's a movie that I can see not a lot of people wanting to go see because of its background. But I really had a lot of fun with The Flash. I really did. Yeah. And I, I'm going to praise this movie. The thing about it is, you know, much like the Jonathan Majors thing, there's a lot of questions about, you know, like how do we support films that have people in them that we don't know if we really like all that much. I get that. I, I've always been someone who can separate the art from the artist um, and, and view a movie on its own merits. I'm also somebody that I'm not going to denigrate an entire film because they shot the movie before this person's problems came to light. Um, there's a number of other people involved with The Flash. I'm a huge fan of Andy Muschietti, the director. He did Mama, and he did the two-part It films that I really love. Uh, and he's also set up to do the new Batman film now, too. I'm a huge fan of Andy Muschietti. And so I was going to see yeah. this film at, from him as a director. Uh, you know, again, Ezra Miller's things in, in real life, uh, I hope I hope they never play The Flash again because I don't think I don't think they deserve it after their, the situation they've put people through. <laughs> but... As the film stands on its own merits, Ezra Miller's performance is great. Yeah. Um, Why the hell can we not get the Batgirl movie? I don't you know, know I hope if it's been canned this way, I hope it is really terrible. Because and I, my feelings for it is I think there were certain things made in the editing choices of this film in how this film may potentially tie into future DC installments yeah. that I think negated Batgirl's existence. Okay. If that makes sense. I won't go into any details further than that, but I, I think that's I think that's also part of the reason we're not getting Batgirl is it doesn't make any sense with where the story was headed now. Especially when you're doing Flashpoint, one of the most interesting Exactly. Yeah. Um I felt like the Flash had a really great emotional character story. I mean, if you had the opportunity to go back and save your mother's life, would you do it? You know, and I think even though it wrecks everything else. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's there's there's a very hard lesson to be dealt with. And I think they deal with that lesson in a very interesting way. The film stumbles here and there. Um, but you can also tell that Muschietti is having a lot of fun. There is a whole sequence at the beginning of the film where we get to see a, a great set with with uh, the flash with Barry trying to save a bunch of people at a hospital. Um, if you've seen the movie, you know about the baby scene. I think it's just. It's a really entertaining and completely silly sequence, but that's how they've kind of styled this version of the Flash to be. Is this version of the Flash is kind of the, you know, the arrogant one, the foolish one, the one that's not really paying attention. And uh, I think that yeah, because Flash is always considered not really thinking things through. Yeah, right. He's almost always, like always, thinking too fast and not stopping to think. He you know, have the forethought. It's yeah. always he was willing with the afterthought, and that's because you go you you speeding you like you've seen life in a different way. Mm-hmm. You're always moving ahead faster than what it is, right? Yeah, and the way the film uh, connects with what's came before. You know, I I was a fan of some of the the DC stuff. I I, I do enjoy Zack Snyder's directing in a number of the films. I've never been one of those restore the Snyderverse people, but 
Um, but I do like what Zack Snyder's sensibilities brought to a couple of these films. It's nice to see the homage to a lot of the things that he did. I think fans of, of his work should find some things to like in this film. Yeah. But it also kind of paves its own way and sets itself kind of on a, a new path. And I think says goodbye to a lot of the characters that we have grown to love. And I, I really did appreciate that it did feel like a good ending to where the story was heading as well as kind of hints at where we could go next. And again, this is a case where I think the nostalgic stuff is really member berries. It's very much, you know, done for the sake of doing it instead of done for any, any real story reason. I still had fun with it. I wouldn't lie. (laughs) Well, before we go, I would just give a shout out. Um, the movie that you haven't mentioned before, but I really kind of really didn't enjoy it. Um, Infinity Pool. Oh, okay. Which is kind of hard to digest. Uh, yes. Kind of a movie that has Maya Goth in it um, mm-hmm. after she's done Pearl and X and everything. Um, but it's uh, Brandon Cronenberg's second film. I think it's much better than The Possessor, even though there's some things I like in The Possessor. But this movie has one of those things that's just under your skin. It's not the goriness that I get to it there is of course it's Cronenberg style (laughs) but it's one of those like do you want to go see it again I really don't want to see it again but I when I watched it I I understand the themes and what they're going through you know if you're so rich you don't have to pay for your crimes you can just write a check or don't have to deal with the consequences the way other people do Mm. but also are you losing your soul in the process of doing that as well not paying for the consequences of your own actions we're being a little bit indulgent I did like Infinity Pool um, Infinity Pool is a movie I, I gave a, a positive recommendation to, but I'll say I don't think it was as good as Possessor. I think we're on the opposite sides of that. Are, I really liked yeah. uh, Possessor. I love the first 10 minutes of Possessor. Um, my thing with Infinity Pool is I think Cronen- Brandon Cronenberg's ideas are great. I don't think his execution in this film was was <laughs> on my, the point. That's my argument I had for Possessor. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I think, again, yeah. we're, we're both on opposite ends. I think yeah. if, if you enjoyed Possessor and if you if you like that Cronenbergian flavor, check out Infinity Pool. It's not a movie that I have any real interest in going back to. Uh, I think you need a little more clarity of what's transpiring. And I, when I think in the last half of the film, it goes a bit off the rails for me. There's that scene where they're yeah. following around... Uh, uh, Alexander Skarsgård with the car and, and Mia Goth is kind of shouting at him in an annoying fashion that I just started to say like let's let's get to the let's get to the finale here let's let's go where we're gonna go here because I felt like the near the end of the film it starts to kind of run off the rails and run out of steam uh, but I think yeah there's a lot of great stuff in the film primarily that first half I thought was a really great yeah. kind of uh, Richard Matheson-esque sci-fi story <laughs> I mean aesthetic very rich very inventive, very creative, very fresh, very new kind of a concept. Yeah. Especially for a lot of stuff that's been, you know, sequels and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, st- I still want to see what Brandon Cronenberg does next. And I think that's that's a good push forward for him is like, I really liked Possessor. I liked Infinity Pool, but I wouldn't watch that one again. But yeah. gosh, if he comes out with another movie next year, you know I'm going to be there opening weekend. Um, another one that I just have a mild uh, praise for is You're Killing Me. Uh, with the the girl that goes into the oh that's right yeah you know, with the angels she's well it's a party it's a good and evil party mm-hmm. um and she tries to get a, praise to give her her friend's dad get a reference mm. it's just weird to explain the story but there's the party then everything goes amuck and she has to wear these angel wings the entire time to solve the problem oh yeah being locked in the house I love the concept I like the story it just went a little flat for me at the end because I just knew we all knew what was going to happen yeah at the end 
But um, um, I did love the concept. And, you know, the, the action got me a little bit interested. I was invested for the most part of the movie. Yep. But, I, oh, uh, I was also going to point out, too, there, there's two films that technically won't be on my top ten at the end of the year, but I enjoyed both of them. They came out in 2022, and I have a very strict rule about that. They're, they're not going to make my top ten for that reason. But yeah. uh, two films that came out in 2022 in festivals and then are hitting wider release now, one of them is called Sanctuary. Uh, and it stars Margaret Qualley, and it actually stars, I think his name is Christopher Abbott, who was in Possessor. He was like the main guy in that movie. Yeah. Um, and he plays a burgeoning, I think, CEO, I guess, who Margaret Qualley plays his dominatrix. And they have a very messed up relationship, but he knows now that he needs to sever that dominatrix relationship because he's going to be in the public eye a lot more and he can't afford to do that. So he basically ends things with his dominatrix and the messed up stuff in which the, like the power dynamics that play out over the next 90 minutes in this hotel room are just really fascinating. Sanctuary. Um, sanctuary. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's definitely an R rated movie. There's definitely a lot of um, R rated talk in the film, but if you, if, if you're into those really kind of messed up power dynamics, it's a really fascinating hotel room set movie. Yeah. Um, the other one I want to bring, bring up because I, I just had a lot of fun with this one. It, it came out wide release, I think, last week, and it's called The Blackening. If you're a fan of horror films, you know that trope that we've had since since horror movies started, which is that the, the black character dies first was kind of the joke. And this is a movie that posits, I think, eight black right. friends who are going to that, a cabin. Not only that, but like another teen movie, you can only have one black friend at the party, right? Exactly, yes. the, Yeah. <laughs> And so this is a movie, uh, Tim Story directed it. He did the two uh, Fantastic Four films from the, the 2000s, as well as the two ride-along films, the Taxi remake. Done a, a lot of films around that time period. Yeah. This is posits that there are eight friends going to a cabin in the woods for a weekend. They're all black. And like I, I love the, the selling scene of it on the poster is we can't all die first which I think is just such a fascinating deconstruction. It's a great yeah. tagline. Yeah. Um, and the idea that like they end up at this cabin in the woods and there's this mystical board game that is a, a very racist board game that it's called The Blackening. And it has like all these different, <laughs> you know, I, it has all these different uh, questions, I guess, to prove your blackness or something like that. And the way it plays with those horror tropes, there's a guy with a mask who's like torturing the ones that don't do well. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. Again, not like the most ingenious idea, but the no, gimmick but, itself works really well. I mean, well. Ready or Not wasn't the genius idea, but mm -hmm. it was executed brilliantly, and this kind of seems like the same kind of format. Yeah, Is this and a Bloomhouse? Uh, no, actually, I thought it would have been, though. It's a Lionsgate film that came out, and okay. it's one where I feel like maybe Blumhouse... Uh, Blumhouse could do some interesting things with the concept in like if they ever made a sequel or something. Uh, but there's some really fascinating ways in which they deconstruct the black character in horror. I mean, there's a great scene where they're told to sacrifice the one of them that is the blackest. And so they have this conversation about like, right. well, there's the, I love this because it's a movie that we can't do. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's one of those shoes movies where like I can yeah. experience horror from a different perspective that I'll never be able to experience. Yeah. Um, but they, they're told to sacrifice the one of them that's the blackest. And <laughs> one of the characters is like, well, I have a I white. awful laughing. She's like, I have a white parent. So I'm I, like, you guys all judge me for not being full black. You know, <laughs> she judged me for that. But now you want to kill me for it, too. And there's another guy who says, well, you can't you can't sacrifice me. I'm not the most black. And they go, why? And he's like, well, I voted for Trump twice. <laughs> and and the, the whole like the idea of they're like trying like kind of to like really unembrace the part of them that that got them to the situation it's a really fascinating and fun movie 
um, that I definitely recommend. It reminded me of a short film that we saw on Screaming Off Scream, my wife and I went to Screaming Off Scream, the comp- short film competition of 15-minute movies or 15, at most 15-minute long. Mm. And one of them was this, you know, anchor was supposed to do his very first audition, and he didn't know it was for this extreme right-wing news program. Mm. <laughs> and he's reading the teleprompter about what we should do with the minorities, and, the, and he's very uncomfortable. He's like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, to the point they're well, almost like they're going to threaten to kill him if he doesn't finish doing the news anchor. But it was it's one of those that it's just the uncomfortableness, yeah, the things that we can't discuss. Yeah. And- we, yeah, you even get a, a taste of that. Uh, Diedrich, Not really discussed. What's the point of we're discussing? Um, but the, the, their dynamic, their conversation. Yeah. yeah, there's a white cop character in the film. Doesn't have a lot of scenes, but he's played by Diedrich Bader. Uh, oh yeah, from, hey, from now, things. hey, now we got a movie. He's got a couple of scenes in the film, and it's really funny because he plays kind of that white guy who doesn't know how to talk to black people about these kinds of concerns about these kinds of things so he's introduced in a way that you're like kind of introducing you're like is he racist i don't really know and then like as you see him more you're like no i think he might is he just, a bad guy like i can't ignorant. really tell yeah yeah because of course like when you have you know eight black people in a horror movie being hunted down by a racist killer and there's one white guy that keeps popping up they're like could he be maybe yeah, i don't know be. like you know you immediately turn on on that idea so it it really has fun of making fun of its own characters but also making fun of its audience and everything that came before it's it's a good deconstruction i thought i will get not i have never heard it so you brought it up right now i have to see yeah. this it's uh, just and- opening at the I, I feel sad cuz i saw it last friday and i was i was the only person in the theater and i really hate when i go to the theater and i'm the only person well, there i don't think anybody's heard about this yeah. i don't, I don't know of any ad campaign i haven't seen any trailers outside of a theater um, but I did see a number of the posters. So if you catch that poster, like keep it burned into your brain and go check it out. I think if, if you miss it in theaters, definitely check it out at home. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a great catalog of list of movies. Um, we should, yeah, uh, they go recommend to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen, there's a movie coming up. I think it's for available to rental t- starting tomorrow or in a Tuesday. It's called showing up with, um, Oh yeah. I missed um, that in theaters as well. Um, Michelle Williams playing a sculptor mm. and it's all about the balance between creativity and hustling at the same time that we all artists kind of do we're really good hustlers or really good creative people we can't be both yeah and uh, showing up is the name of the movie and I think if I seen it, it would probably be on my list already yeah there's another one too actually I was gonna see it the this morning but uh thanks to a really bad a tree removal contractor that didn't show up on time for my appointment. I did not get to see this movie today, and I, I probably would have made my list. And I, I'm really excited for it. It's called Past Lives. It's currently yeah. in theaters. Um, um, Ruth Moreras, who is another oh, yeah. one of our members of the uh, Minnesota Critics Alliance, says it's the best movie of the year. I I have not heard a single person give a bad take on this movie. I, I think it has 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, so there's obviously a few people that didn't like it. But I have not seen any people that I agree with or that I tend to, you know, side with that uh that didn't like this movie and it's you know kind of a simplistic story from what it seems like in the trailers and that it's a woman who got married and and then she ends up kind of reconnecting with her childhood crush for for one day it seems like and how it tests kind of you know where she's at with her relationship currently and and some of the societal norms that come with that some of the race norms that come with that it's a really fascinating looking movie and i'm so sad i missed it before coming here but i'm gonna give like a pre-recommendation for that it sounds like a fascinating movie well, once again, all those are movies you can probably see and Google and check it out. You can be able yourself. Um, thanks for listening. And, of course, Kyle knows it's not over till the guests say it's over. It's over. It's over.